This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. I feel like I haven't seen you people in forever time. It's a new cave. What the hell is forever time? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? Oh, I was trying to be cute and I failed. But um, it's been a while. Cerise, you've been jaunting all over the place. I have, um, in as much as I've been to one other place. No, two other places. Well, that's more than me. Bris- so that's... Brisbane's a place. Brisbane is a place and a state of mind. And a state. And, well, Mostly a state. Th- this is going nowhere. <laughs> We're glad to have you back in the studio with us. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Emma Westwood sends her apologies. Hopefully she'll be back next week so we can have a full cave happening. Spectacular. Yeah, that'll be good. But um, let's get through tonight's show first. <laughs> in a good way. We On tonight's show we're going to talk about the highly anticipated new film by Christopher Nolan, Dunkirk. And we're going to take a look at the 1951 classic by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. The Tales of Hoffman. But look, first up, as we mentioned on last week's show, George A. Romero recently died at the age of 77, and we wanted to dedicate an entire segment of our show to him in recognition of his enormous contribution and influence on modern cinema and popular culture. I don't think we've ever done this before, but Romero deserves it. He often worked as a writer, director, editor, and cinematographer on his films. He's appeared as an actor in his own films and other people's films. His debut film from 1968, Night of the Living Dead, was not the first zombie film, but it was the first of its kind, and Romero is largely credited as being the creator of how zombies are currently represented in popular culture. In fact, that film alone is extraordinary for its influence on the horror genre, independent filmmaking, and the whole midnight movie thing. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Romero. I I discovered Romero... Like most horror films, I wasn't into it as a, as a teenager. I got into it later in life, in my, my 20s. Did either of you two grow up with his, his films? I, I had a, a seminal encounter with Dawn of the Dead when I was in my teens in New Zealand at some lame party, which became less lame as soon as that was slotted into the VCR. And uh, malls, shopping malls, mall culture was very new to New Zealand at the time I saw that. And yet uh, a little penny dropped watching this film, which was that it wasn't really about zombies as such it was actually a satire my little little teen brain beginning to make some little connections uh get some ideas about how films could actually be about things which was kind of new to me at that time oh this I is one of those was, films it actually for you, really yeah. was dawn of the dead from 1978 yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't 1978 when i saw it it was mm, 80s sometime. bit later than but, that we yeah. can just yeah, yeah. We have to be specific i'm not that elderly <laughs> people but and this was yeah. romero's second zombie film yeah but it's it's possibly even more influential this one than night of the living dead Maybe I don't know. That's yeah. hard, hard to say. I mean, yeah. But it was—I I loved it. Um, uh, it was extremely innovative in its splatter at the time as well. It was, uh, I suppose it heralded uh, a whole wave of increasingly splatty zombie flicks. But it was—it was smart. It was super smart, and um, I, I got this idea of all these. I got what was he getting at with all these zombies wandering around a shopping centre. Um, what a great place for a siege. <laughs> 
that, that was um, that's probably my favourite one as well. I haven't seen nearly as many of his films as I would have liked to have. I've seen most of the zombie ones, but I remember the first time I saw Dawn of the Dead. I think Acme did a did a retrospective of his films, or maybe of horror films of the eighties and the late seventies. But um, I remember seeing that at, uh, at Acme, and suddenly a lot of things made sense. It was one of those films where you realise, oh, this is where everything twenty or thirty years since have kind of come from. It really is one of those pivotal films that changed the game. I found about out about George Romero. I discovered Romero through uh, the same place that I discovered a lot of who are still some of my favourite filmmakers in the early, I'm thinking early, maybe mid-90s. I, I'm going from memory here. Um, but SBS used to play the Jonathan Ross series, the Incredibly Strange Film Show. Um, and then the second series of that, which was called Son of the Incredibly Strange Film Show. A bunch of these are still on SBS. Uh, sorry, are still on YouTube. You can chase these down. But people like uh, David Lynch, that's where I discovered David Lynch. Um, no, that must have been Twin Peaks. This must have been around the same time as Twin Peaks. So I'm trying to, sorry, having a little nostalgia binge. Um, Aki Karazmaki, Doris Wishman, uh, so many, so many people that, that I still lo- love, love, love their films. Um, and SBS would play an episode and then follow it up by a feature by these particular filmmakers. Um, and that's, that's where I discovered Romero. I don't even remember what the feature was. I just remember being struck um, by the guy, by this man talking about, you know, Jonathan Ross talking to him, interviewing him and talking about um, the making of Night of the Living Dead and then going on to talk about this more political aspect of things like Dawn of the Dead and things like that and just struck by the man's intelligence and kindness. It really, I was, I think I've, in a way I'm very fortunate in that I, I, I discovered his films and him as a person at the same time, if you know what I mean. There's just such a kind of warmth to him the, um, in interviews at least anyway. That comes across in the documentary Midnight Movies, which I think that's the one, isn't it, which looks at the, the kind of the key midnight movies mm-hmm. from the era and, you know, includes things like the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Razorhead and El Topo. And, and Romero really does stand out in that as a very passionate, kind, considerate man. I mean, he's, He's the only director I've ever seen who called out, um, um, what's his name, El Topo director, Jodorowsky. He's the only person I've ever seen really call him out for for killing animals on screen for effect and Romero was just really passionately um, angry about that and sort of said, you know, he compromises a really strong artistic work and to hear that kind of ethical consideration from a horror filmmaker is is important, I think, and that really impressed me. Um, And he really was a DIY guy, Romero. I mean, he, he kind of stayed like that too. He sort of, for all his acclaim and popularity, he, he struggled for his entire career to, to break through. There's a great documentary, again, that's on YouTube um, if you don't know that much about him, but I think it's a really great place to start, not just with Romero, but with this kind of entire uh, 60s, 70s indie horror movement that was happening in North America, not just the United States, but also Canada. Uh, it's directed by a chap called Adam Simon. Cerise, I think you've seen this doco. I'm not sure offhand if we've talked about it before. Is it but America's it's, Nightmare? Or, or it's called something the, America, like that? Yeah, no. the American oh, yeah. Nightmare. Yeah, yeah, Cronenberg's um, profile it's, too, it's, isn't he? It's, yeah. in, it's, it's interviews with Romero, Cronenberg, Tobe Hooper, John Carpenter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really um, a guy called Adam Lowenstein, who's a professor who's done amazing stuff on trauma studies and, and the horror film. Um, and it really talks to these directors about the historical moments in which they were making these films. Um, you know, things like Halloween and um, obviously Night of the Living Dead is a really big one. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I think in a way, and I'm assuming this is why Emma's probably at home tucked under her doona weeping, is that Romero for me is really really the first of these guys to go it's it's just sort of occurred to me it's like oh then the, you know this means that 
what's going to happen to John Carpenter? What's going to happen to David Cronenberg? They'll be fine, right? Hmm. Like, they're going to live forever. Oh, right, to go off? Yes, like, right, yeah. They're well, immortal, right? Like, if he, Romero can go, what does that leave his friend Dario Argento? I think that, that that's why we mourn the passing of these people, actually. because that the, shock. Yeah, yeah, it's that shock about who's next and if our heroes are dying, that, that, that draws attention to our own mortality. But I mean, Romero, he kind of got in first, didn't he, before a lot of these people? I mean, 90s, 70, uh, sorry, 68, that, that's... Um, um, I mean, that's the era we associate with the new Hollywood kind of thing. And, but a year of great tumult as well mm. yes. around the world and, and including uh, connected with the civil rights movement, which that film, Night of the Living Dead, bounces off in a big way. It was one of the first key films, an independent film with a black lead. And you could really say he Solely was because the lead. He, because he was the only person that Romero knew who could act, which, I, which is just such a famous anecdote, but I think that's a really... What is the story behind this? Because people debate about whether Romero was making a this, political point casting him or whether this it blew was... Up Sort this of. blew up on social media recently. It's like, oh, yes. it's not about race. You know, he didn't deliberately cast a black guy. It was just the only person he knew. My feeling is maybe it's just the things that, that I've read and, and the interviews that I've seen, but I've always felt that Romero was, Romero was very articulate and he was like, no, I didn't deliberately cast a black person in the role, mm. but it was a zeitgeist. You know, we, we you couldn't avoid it. We were living in it. You know, I mean, of course it's a film about race. It was the middle of the civil rights movement. Um, you know, he said that he was driving, I think the story, I'm going from memory here, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but when the film was finally in the can, I believe is what they say, he had it in the back of his car and he was driving from Pittsburgh I think to New York when the news about Martin Luther King's assassination came on the radio. I mean, he was in it. You know, this was this was the moment that that film was made. Like, of course, it's about it, but I don't mean that necessarily. Like in inverted commas, about. I mean, it, no, of course, it's a film that's reflecting and thinking about difference and violence and race yep. because that was the culture at the time. It's that zeitgeist thing where these things almost exactly. seep in unconsciously. I'm trying to remember. I, I, I mean, I think Romero, the, the commentary I've heard him, and this is from memory, so I, I don't want to people. Take this by verbatim, which was it probably was colorblind casting, but he kind of ran with it when yeah. he realized how powerful th- this was simply having a black lead without it being explicitly. There are specific so. skills in the film that you know, specific shots and things that support that. The very yep. famous end montage from this film, and I don't want to give it away because I know that not everybody has seen it, but the way that this film ends still devastates me as much as the first time I saw it, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. on a really deep shocking level, not in a horror film kind of slasher level, but in a deeply humane suffering, you know, like what... It it, remain, I mean, it's extraordinary. It remains the most serious. topical film. Yeah, um, it remains the most serious of his horror films as well. Like, from dawn onwards, they very quickly moved into very knowing satire. Not not spoofs, not playing it for laughs, but quite consciously there are satires, where this one plays it quite straight. There's and an it's, urgency it's tonight that yeah. I think you can still really feel. Oh, yeah, there's a d- desperation mm. to it. And I, I do note with this point on race that prior zombie films, because as we said, this wasn't the first, but prior zombie films had really other the zombies, not just as the living dead, but racially as well. They were from Haiti. They were mm-hmm. from another culture. And um, in a weird way, the, the you know, zombies, are, you could say there's a cultural appropriation at work in taking this whole mythology of, of this, the, the living dead and the voodoo rites that were associated with uh, zombieism in earlier films. Notably, the, the, I think the earliest zombie film that comes to mind is very tellingly called White Zombie. The, the Bela Lugosi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, just, there's things like the the hammer plague of the zombies, yeah. which is great. Uh, a really I great walked film. with a zombie, which yes. is extraordinary. A, it's a beautiful film. Yeah. I walked with a zombie, but, but right, it's all kind of voodoo connected, it isn't really it? Really is. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Prior about, to Romero, it's all about the other. Whereas Night of the Living Dead is all about the callers coming from inside the house. You know that it's it's, it's, it's yeah, inside. It's, yeah. it's in. And I think you know I've never tested it, but it, um, I think Night of the Living Dead doesn't actually use the word zombie. I don't think so. No. Um, from I think they use the, creatures and mm. these things, but I don't think the word zombies actually used, which I find quite. No, I can't recall that for certain. Quite but I think thrilling you're right. in a way. Yeah. Don't I think, think it's a word that even pops up much in his films now. I think yeah. about it. Yeah. Yep. Um, which is really clever, really, really clever. I love the urgency of his films. Like, I haven't seen heaps, but things like Dawn of the Dawn of the Dead and The Crazies are two where there's just oh, this the sense crazies is great. of chaos all the time. I mean, everyone talks about Robert Altman and his overlapping dialogue, but Romero does that beautifully as well. Just this constant, you know, police chatter and people in the media and people just panicking. I mean, his films have this exciting vibrancy to them. I remember that's the thing that really struck me, especially from Dawn, just the sense of chaos that's happening in those in those early scenes. I bet you want to talk about Martin, don't you, Alex? Do you? You know, I, you? I like Martin. I like Martin. Um, I'm, not, I'm not as big on Martin as other people. I oh. think my, my hidden treasure, I think Martin's often cited as like the hidden Romero treasure. My real hidden... Emma's a huge fan of Martin. Yeah, yeah. my, my yeah. Romero hidden treasure is a film from 2000 called Bruiser. Um, which nobody talks about. I think it was a bit of a, you know, bit hit and miss. And Romero de- definitely did some misses, I think we can comfortably say, and not As, insult yeah, his memory. But I love Bruiser. It was his sort of homage, I guess, to... Or he was riffing on um, Georges Franju's uh, Eyes Without a Face, the 1960 film. So it's a man who, who basically wakes up and his face is gone. He just has a white mask and it's you know about what he decides to do it's a film about identity masculinity and really about consumerism again he's really kicking into this kind of um american dream you know the 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 farce that it is and the misfits are in it which is cool the band Mm. Mm. (laughs) do do you have a favorite cerise um, it, it would be either Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead, I think. But there are oddities in that uh, oeuvre that I, I've stumbled upon and enjoyed moments of. And Martin was a, a surprise when I finally caught up with it, this oddball 70s... I played at Miff a couple of years yeah, ago when did. he was here. Was it 2008? It's a very unorthodox vampire yeah. film. Uh, a, a, a sort of sulky, brooding teen vampire in suburbia with 70s decor a go-go, as I recall. I don't really remember the plot especially. I remember it being sort of just a sullen sort of film. <laughs> Lurid but sullen. I, um, this I is from 78. We're not talking about Twilight. I've never seen any of those. So. <laughs> no, it's just funny listening to you describing yeah. the old yeah. the idea of a, a sulky teenager vampire yeah, right. is, um, is is kind of commonplace now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, 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 it's, it's very I'm fashionable so now. Out but, of that. but I'm <laughs> in, in, in '78. This, yeah. this was a very new, fresh idea. There was a nice anthology film, um, uh, Creep Show. Uh, Stephen Stephen King involved with that. I think yeah. King even yeah. acted in a segment mm-hmm. of that. I remember uh, a, an image from that that stuck with me for years was Ted Danson buried in the sand with just his head uh, sticking out of it as the tide came in. I didn't like Ted Danson that much <laughs> at the time. And uh, I found that strangely heartwarming but also chilling. I took that image to bed with me for quite some time after. He's, he's good buddies. or He was good buddies with Dario Argento and mm. they um, Argento worked on Dawn of the Dead with him. Um, yes, that's right. And plonked a goblin score on it. He sure he plonked mm. the held goblin score mm. on it. Um, but he also they worked on a great. Um, is it is an anthology two films? They did that, two e- two evil eyes. They did together where they both did yeah. a um, Edgar Allan Poe story. And they're not each director's best work, but there's a lot of love in it, oh, and I, I'm kind of fond of it. It you know. Yeah, it's that sort of, you know, video video culture 
slumber party f- film. Totally. Really, not really fun. And Romero acted, had an acting part in The Silence of the Lambs. He was in Silence of the Lambs. He was yeah, a yeah. prison Jonathan guard Jonathan Demi was memory, a big fan. Is that right? so, yeah, yeah. Uh, FBI agents. There we go. One of the Memphis-based FBI agents. Something uniformed from memory. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and he's, he's, he's great. Um, he, I mean, we, I got to speak to Edgar Wright recently. Edgar Wright sort of grew up worshipping him as well. I mean, Shaun of the Dead is obviously such mm. a direct homage. And I think it's Land of the Dead, where as a result... George Romero got Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg in as cameos, as zombies, um, which was very, very sweet. And Edgar Wright has recently done a very sweet tribute online to, to, to Romero as well, as have so many other people. Yeah, I can't remember which one was Land and which was Diary and which were all... The, there was, there was some Diary was yeah. the found footage, footage one. one. Yeah. yeah, not so good. Land was the one that introduced the idea that the zombies are developing empathy. And was this one which had Asia Argento in, with that Argento connection again? She was she in was the Dawn of the Dead remake, wasn't she? Mm. I think she's in Land as well. She, yeah, I think so. Dennis Hopper. Yep. Yeah, it's yep. all a bit blurry from years ago. <laughs> I haven't revisited but, but them. But even those lesser, later Dawn, Dead films still have some really interesting ideas. Like, he continually evolved the mythology as well and often in response to what was happening um, today. I mean, Land of the Dead is about this kind of narcissistic um, tyrant who, who rules who rules the country now. And what would that be like? Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm. it's, you know, he had his finger on the pulse, Romero, mm. or I, the lack of pulse. Look, and I think that's the thing about it, going back to that um, American Nightmares documentary, I think that's the thing of that, that all those filmmakers at that time, so Carpenter, Cronenberg, Hooper, you know, they, they all, there was an intensity and I think that it was, and that's what that documentary really, you know, that they were living through this time of, of extraordinary upheaval and social change and that horror was a kind of palette. It was a language for them to talk about the world that they were living in um, through violence. Where's Craven talking about um, Last House on the Left, mm. which would be so easy to dismiss as a kind of nothing exploitation film until you realise the culture that that film was made in and you realise it's like Night of the Living Dead, it's desperately political. Well, horror and science fiction are such fantastic genres for exploring the ideas of the time. And in the 50s, American cinema exploded with all the competing ideologies coming through in their cinema. And then I think we saw that again in the the 70s and early 80s. But Romero was certainly a leader of that pack and, and, you know, he's left behind an enormous legacy. I think we can collectively say we're very sad to hear the news. Left, I mean, left, left behind lots of sad people. Lots of sad people, but an extraordinary body of work. Um, difficult to track down most of these films in Australia right now. There's always vanilla. Well, weirdly, Night of the Living Dead fell into the public domain a long yeah. time ago, so it's, it's quite easy to find cheapo uh, versions of that floating around. But, um, yeah. Yeah, um, the Astor, though, if you're interested, the Astor Theatre on Tuesday the 1st of August are going to be screening Night of the Living Dead and Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, as, a, as a tribute to Romero, which I thought was a really lovely idea. So bravo to them for organising that so quickly. We'll move on now on Plato's Cave, but rest in peace, George A. Romero. Thank you so much. Three Triple R. Triple R, live on location from MIF. Monday, August 7th from MIF's Festival Lounge, downstairs at Forum Melbourne for the MIF Talks program. From 4pm, catch Maps with Phoebe Squared for interviews about select music on film titles. Guests joining Fee throughout the program include you, Alex. Make sure you show up. Uh-oh. Alexandra Helen Nicholas explores MIF's pioneering women program stream. Also, Dr. Lisa McKinney will chat about the new Susan Chiani documentary, A Life in 
Waves and Steve Kilby. And the film's director Mike Brook discussed the new film Something Quite Peculiar, The Life and Times of Steve Kilby. There'll also be musical performances by Steve Kilby and RVG's Romy Vagger. Then from 7pm... Join Cerise Howard. That's you, Cerise. You need to show up. Emma Westwood. <laughs> Emma, you can't be right. sick that night. Alexandra Helen Nicholas. You'll have to hang around. Have to hang around. And Tara Judy. I remember that name. Mm. Blast where, where, from the past. Where do we know her from? <laughs> One of the original Plato's Cave founders. Amazing. So Cerise, Emma, Alex and Tara, and not me, from Plato's Cave, they'll be there as they review some of their special picks from the festival. Where where will you be? Why are you avoiding us? Well, I work... (laughs) (laughs) Do you not like girls? What's going on? Exactly exactly what he's first. The doctor is a woman and now women film critics. Um, Too many women talking about amazing cinema. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I won't even be able to listen. I think I'm going to be doing a Q and A somewhere. I work for Miff, so they've, they've got me attached to the, you know, to, to the rack. Convenient, they, yeah. Mm. It's but, an um, inconvenient truth. <laughs> I will listen back to the podcast because I reckon that's going to be a fabulous show. Um, it's been ages since we've heard from Tara, and I don't think she, she's ever broadcast with Emma and Alex before. So it's going to be a really exciting show. Um, Tune in or come down from 4 to 8pm to catch all the action live. More info at miff.com.au. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Dunkirk is the much-anticipated new film written and directed by Christopher Nolan of Interstellar, Inception and the Dark Knight trilogy fame. The film is about the evacuation of English soldiers from the beaches of Dunkirk in France when the Allied forces found themselves outnumbered and surrounded by the Germans uh, between the 26th of May to the 4th of June 1940 during World War II. Uh, Despite reportedly doing extensive research on the evacuation, Nolan's film is fictionalised and told in three parts that the film continually cuts between, even though the periods of time covered in each part is different. So we have the soldiers on the beach trying to get on board a ship to leave safely, which takes place over a week, a civilian's mariner's boat from England travelling to Dunkirk to help with the evacuation, that story takes place over a day, and then a Royal Air Force Spitfire pilot attempting to shoot down the German planes that are are bombing the rescue boats, and that story takes place just over one hour. Uh, Many of the roles are played by unknowns, but we do have Kenneth Branagh, Killian Murphy, Mark Rylance and Tom Hardy in some of the more prominent roles. That's Tom Hardy reprising his role in a previous Christopher Nolan film, I feel. He, he, he does the mask over the face thing again, doesn't he? It is unintelligible, <laughs> yes. Nailed it again. It's a role where it doesn't really matter what he's saying, though, I don't think, in, in this one. Oh, I would have minded some David Nivenisms, something a little bit of a pip-pip. Didn't Kenneth Branagh kind of fulfil that role? Oh, no, he's not David Nivenish enough. He's, <laughs> uh, he's not moustachioed enough to start with. He needs the John Waters moustache. This was the first Christopher Nolan film I liked. Oh, wow. You, you're not a fan of any of his not previous films? Not even remotely. Films. I think that their pomp and splendour aside, they're just so flabby. They're just, it's just, they're so long and flabby. I just, like, I want him to have a really, it's the same editor, apparently. But they just, this was the first one that felt really live to me. I mean, any film that starts with somebody having a crap on a beach, I'm in. <laughs> like, this is different. Well, no, I, I, I adored this. And I'm I've read a... other critics say this is the film that he, he, this is the film that he's been working towards. What's interesting, I'm, I mean, um, I know. Fan, but my biggest criticism is he over explains everything. Yes, he over plots yes. his films. That, even, that magic even films one. What was that magic one? The it was so 
Cut that by 40 minutes and it would have been a great yeah. film, but just so much talking. But Dunkirk, so you get so little plot. Yep. This is just an experience. This is an immersive experience. I, I adored think. it. I was really surprised. Yeah. I went in, it's like, oh, God, it's a Christopher Nolan film. Like, I know this territory and I was absolutely, like I said, you know, the minute that somebody crapped on a beach, I was in. I think you were at the same screening as me, Cerise. I think I spotted you from afar and went, oh, Cerise is back in town. There she oh, is. Oh, okay. Yeah, so oh, you saw it at the IMAX. Like I did. I did. Yes. Yeah. Well, what, were you impressed? Uh, I was. I certainly immersed yep. in it uh, when almost all of my vision, including the peripheral, is uh, entirely uh, taken up watching images of dogfights um, with amazing depth of field or um, just matter-of-factly watching boats sink. It's amazing his boat sinking. I haven't seen boats sink like that on film quite, quite just quite like that before. They they tended to do it very abruptly, mm. which I thought was wonderful actually. Mm, yeah. Um, the the sense of dread that this film um, sustained was was really quite something. I, I mean, I'm sure it's in some part due to that pulse that never lets up throughout the entire film. Maybe it does let up a tiny bit at the end when a little bit of sentimentality has to creep in. But We really, heard some of that before, yeah. Yeah, the, the track I played. But yep. otherwise, it's, it's very loud and I, I never totally filtered it out it just uh, and, and had it work just purely uh, as effect. I was always conscious of it, of that sort of tss, tss, yep. tss, throughout the whole film. Well, there's literally a ticking clock in there yeah. on the soundtrack. There's that, you know, tick sound yeah. through a lot of the, the score um, and what I like about Hans Zimmer and Nolan is they often construct a film score that blurs with the the sound editing yeah. or, or the, the, the soundtrack and it's sometimes difficult to tell what he's digesting and what he's non-digesting. And, and what is Tom Hardy saying? And what is Tom Hardy <laughs> saying? Um, but I think that works really nicely in, in this film and it creates a heightened sense of tension which yeah, really um, does. they did really well in The Dark Knight with, with the kind of screeching violin sounds every time you know the Joker was about to appear and I think he does it really well here with that constant ticking sound just that that feeling of our time is running out that sense of immediacy and I think it's really crucial in a war film that there's a sense of urgency and immediacy about the moment um, that the danger is in the here and now, you know, that it's it's not, you know, we have this sort of broader story, but it, the the energy or the connection, I think, with the film is in the moment. Um, you know, what's going to happen, what can happen now, anything can happen, you know, this sort of, uh, yeah, just that sense of immediacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, you know, the fact that the characters, and, and, and it does make you reflect, you know, that, you know, people thinking about the real event that this was based on and similar um, similar scenarios, you know, that somebody can be there and suddenly they're not there. Yeah. Um, and that, that quick flash, everything can change. Um, and like you said, you know, Cerise, like the, the speed with which these quite spectacular things happen, you know, somebody's there, suddenly they're gone. There's a boat there, the boat's gone. There's a yeah. plane there, the, you know, it's somebody's standing up, then they've got their pants down having a crap on the beach. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the speed of this film. And, and as I said, this is, I think, because it's such a soft point with me with Nolan's films, um, you know, for somebody that I've really, really struggled with in the past for being just so sloppy with the temporal elements of film, um, I was absolutely gobsmacked. And, I, I, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a lovely feeling that this is the film that he got right. You oh, know, yes, because um, this one really you know, matters. Like, I mean, like, buddy, if you, you mess this one up, it's not, yeah. you know, I mean, I know that, that, you know, Batman is very precious to a lot of people, but I think it means a little more if you, you know, you mess up Dunkirk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's not cool. It's funny. This film does a lot of things that I normally don't like in war films, but they're done in a way that's 
completely fine. And, and those things include not humanising the enemy, um, not giving you any political or ideological um, background. But the reason that those two things absent from this film really work is the film isn't trying to be a rah-rah, we are heroes, look at us. You know, it, it doesn't have that kind of nationalist feel. It is about the immediacy of that the experience. Micro. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my other pet hate is war being turned into spectacle, which mm. is often sickening. Um, but in this film, I think it is it definitely hits you emotionally but not in a, it looks cool when that shit gets blown up kind of way. Um, it is tense and you feel the tragedy of, of the moment. And you also, importantly, I think, get a sense of, especially towards the end, that humans can do amazing things sometimes. And I, I actually really went with some of that emotion at the end thinking, this was an amazing thing the English pulled off. I mean, it was a retreat, mm. but it was a hell of an operation. And the people who persevered and got through this are remarkable. The uh, the little boat that um, Mark Rylance skippers um, yeah. that that story's you know I think the one that has the most emotional punch and yeah uh, I'd agree with that mm-hmm. but it's also so desperately British yeah uh, they're yeah. they're so <laughs> uh, which I adore yeah well that, again it could have gone a little more David Niveny but um, <laughs> but yeah it's just. Um, It's so idealistic, in fact, this idea that war might be um, engaged in nobly and yet this little boatload is determined to... um to act with a noble purpose and and he um he even treats his passengers he it's almost as if he's got a sort of um uh not quite supernatural but um what's the word i'm it's not supernatural it's something other than another natural there's another natural intuitive or yeah something like that anywho uh, uh a sense of character and what happens to people in um what are they I've run out of my cliches, my English idioms. I've been out of the country a few weeks. And I, I, You've been I've been lost, in Queensland for too long. Yeah, I've, I've lost all recourse to my, my usual arsenal It's like he has, a, he has a sixth sense or a kind of innate ability to... Am I feeding you the word? Yeah, it's, it's good. Sounds like... Yeah, sounds like... Three um, syllables. Yeah, well, look. I'll just say trope and problematic. I'll just call <laughs> to some of the classics, yeah. yeah. Film crit, film crit, trope problematic. Uh, um, no, no, just he seems to have a quite uncanny grasp of human nature. Uh, he's able to explain away the seemingly... Uh, superficially cowardly behaviour of somebody they rescue. Uh, as if, uh, I mean, that seems like a very mature understanding of human nature that doesn't belong in the theatre of war these days. Uh, you don't hear tell of such, um, uh, I think, understandings of um, what people go through in those yeah. uh, extreme situations. And, and there he is just matter-of-factly piloting this boat, if a boat is something you pilot. Do you pilot a boat? Captain, skipper it, whatever. And he's uh, he's just on it, isn't he? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of grey in the characters. I mean, mm. it, it, there's no huge grand story arcs, but there's lots of little micro stories and micro tension moments. But all those stories are often about the grey zone, about about the huge moral compromises we might make under extreme circumstances, and and, and just you know the fr- fragility of the human spirit under this incredible duress. Well, and I think it's that sense of scale in that. And, and I was thinking about this when I was watching the film in that, you know, that which, you, you know, I think you do, it's a kind of natural reaction when you watch a film based on a, on a real event like this. You do start thinking, you know, well, people at the time who were in the real situation, you know, they're not, they don't have Twitter, they don't have social media, you know, they're not, they don't know the big picture, they don't know the big story arc, yeah. you know, so people in that, in that immediate situation, they don't, 
they're, they're not part of something bigger from their own perspective in terms of they're going to die or not die, you know, that immediacy mm. and the, just that sense of scale I think is a really a really interesting sweet spot I think that Dunkirk hits in that it's, it's, it's such an epic story and I don't think anybody would not call this an epic film. But like you said, Thomas, it's not this huge story, you know, this massive story arc with you know, the, the generals, you know, there's not these endless conference room tables, mm. talks with generals and things like that. It's, it's something much more immediate and, and small and, and detailed and hard that this film addresses, I think. Yeah, I think it's a remarkable film. I think for all the anticipation, it still caught a lot of us by by surprise. I had no idea. I, had, yeah. I did not know it was possible for me to really be that affected by Christopher <laughs> Nolan. I don't mean to sound flippant, but I really was not expecting this. Yeah, we've been talking about Dunkirk, which is screening pretty widely at the moment. Uh, do try and see it in 70 mil or even better at IMAX, though. I reckon this is the kind of film where it's worth uh, the time oh, yeah. and money. Absolutely. on immersive experience, that. for yeah. sure. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. Three, triple, R. Now, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image is currently screening a new digital restoration of the 1951 British film The Tales of Hoffman. Directed and produced by the legendary filmmaking team of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, it was arguably the final great film in their partnership, which was at its peak throughout the 1940s with films such as The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, A Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes. (sighs) (laughs) The Tales of Hoffman is an adaptation of the opera by Jacques Offenbach, and it concerns a lovesick poet named Hoffman telling a group of university students about the three great loves and losses in his life, using actual opera singers, many of the ballet dancers who also appeared in The Red Shoes, including Moira Shearer, and a series of elaborate, (laughs) colourful and theatrical sets. The Tales of Hoffman brings the fantastical stories to life through song and dance, George A. Romero once said it was his all-time favourite film and the inspiration for going into filmmaking himself. So this is one of those films with an amazing legacy behind it, which I've always been meaning to see. Is it the same with The Pair of You? It's one that you've been aware of? Was this the first time you'd seen it? It it was the first time I'd seen sort of it in its entirety, but my understanding is what's just screened at Acme actually has extra footage. And in fact, what is still screening at Acme is uh, not just a restored version, but a version with a few extra minutes that it's was one of those films excised. Bits have been lost over time yeah. and I've kept on trying to add bits but back they've in. found them again. Yeah. Um, and so... Because I saw the version with all three stories. Yeah. Yeah, because I believe originally it was released with the last story missing. Not missing, but uh, cut. Oh, okay. Severely. Bludgeoned. Oh, right. Mm, mm. Um, and years and years ago, I saw the sequence from the first story with um, the automaton. Um, that was, I That's think, a cinema... Yeah. It's sort of a prologue, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. The, well, the first, first um, story where... Um, Capelia? No, Capelius is... Oh, no, I can't remember who's who. You're right, the one in the toy yes. shop with the... Toy shop? Is it a toy shop? What are any of these sets? They're such extraordinary Rococo confections that um, situating them in terms of anything sort of concrete like a toy shop is a, almost a bit of a stretch because the, the time and space just dissolves in, on screen there. It's, they're stunning, stunning creations, but also hearkening back to, uh, well, notwithstanding that the, the beautiful Technicolor, but hearkening back to silent film and expressionist. I was thinking a lot of Lottie Renninger, yeah. um, her beautiful early animation, um, just the opening credits of this 
this film. I think this mm-hmm. film is just worth seeing for the credits at the start and the end. The end credits when all the performers the come credits, out, yeah. just tear up. And that's like, a recent beautiful. find. They the end credits gorgeous. where all the performers mm. take a bow is a recent just find. And it's breathtaking, especially because a lot of the a lot of the, the the actors were voiced by a different singer, so you get to see the singer come out and bow with their actor, and they and do a the, nice the little privileging of those who did both. Yes, yeah, yes, it's really interesting yes. formal <laughs> privileging. Mm. Um, yeah, what do you reckon? Oh, it's a, it's an extraordinary sight to behold never mind the the music which is glorious as well um i mean there's probably a lot of people out there like myself who aren't exactly opera buffs uh if anything this could be the perfect gateway to Mm, opera this is the the gateway film to opera as an art form it's um well i I think it considers itself an operetta or is considered an operetta is probably a better way of putting it Uh, in as much as every single thing in it is sung um but it's all in English, which is not the norm, I think, for the canonical opera out there. And it's just so lurid. This, this, um, there is such an extraordinary camp sensibility that infuses every single frame of this film. And you can see its influence uh, in, in later films. I, I know Romero and Martin Scorsese have both professed enormous amount of love for this film, but I, I see its influence elsewhere. I see it in uh, glam rock. I oh, see absolutely. It, yeah, I mean, um, uh, the, the lead, uh, the character playing E.T.A. Hoffman, who's actually an author, so he's not just a random name Hoffman, but the, the Sandman author E.T.A. Hoffman is who that character is all about. Uh, dons a pair of very Elton John-esque glasses at one point. The, yes. the middle story has a bona fide hardcore goth chick in yeah. it. It's like, hey, yes. are you... The middle story was by far from, my favourite. Are you the chick yeah. from the Sisters of Mercy? What's <laughs> going on? It amazingly yep. preempts so much. Um, she's a little bit of Elvira too, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's amazing. Lots oh, of such a vamp. Leather she's got and like the, the cat yeah. suit, which yeah. she's amazing. But there's just a lot of queer cinema that's pulled from this. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, Glam Rock seems to have pulled from it. Um, this extraordinary film, Pink Narcissus. That I was, love that. Yeah, from that is gorgeous. The, the author of whom was unknown for very many years but it, it just something about that candy floss technicolor luridness is uh it's just fed into some weird areas Derek Jarman Ken Russell they've all drawn from yeah, this in a big way it's so over the top and, and it's, it's stunning. Ita- Italian horror like I mean obviously yes. that's what I think about all the time <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah. Bava yeah you know, there's and so Argento much, and you know, yeah um, totally you know things like uh, even the um uh, spirits of the Dead, the mm-hmm. the Italian um, anthology with um, Fellini, Vadim, and I've got blank on the third one. Yes, I've. Oh, it's gonna. I'm gonna wake up in the middle of the night. But the uh, the Fellini film in that Toby mm-hmm. Dammit. Dammit, yeah. Yeah, like it's there's vibes, there's vibes all the way through. I am not an opera person. I've struggled all my life to embrace opera. Um, there are often bits of music I like. I mean, the piece of music I just played has long been a favourite bit of music of mine from opera. And in fact, I, I've weirdly been humming that lately. And when it turned up in this film, it was quite bizarre because I don't know where I first heard it. Um, I still couldn't get into it. I just can't do opera. I, I think it, it, this is a rare case of a film that I think is absolutely brilliant and startling and spectacular, but it was a bit of work for me to get through it because every time they danced, it blew my mind. I love the dancing in this. I love the things that feel like actual songs with through melodies, but when there's sort of people in tight tan pants sort of singing random notes of dialogue to each other, it just lost me. It's so funny that you say that because I grew up, my mother... Um, it's to my shame. It's no. 
my, my, my mother was heavily, heavily into musicals. Mm. Um, and my sister went with her on that and I wasn't so sure. I liked the more sort of modernist ones, you know, the Gene Kelly, uh, Gigi and American in Paris and On the Town, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mum and my sister were really into like the heavy, like Catherine Grace and Howard Keel stuff. Um, so like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Kiss Me Kate, the stuff that was sort of more going towards this sort of operetta yeah. style Hollywood musical. And I think just the the tantrum throwing twelve year old in me bristles, really bristles. You had a similar issue, um, and so I really yeah. I really loved this film. Mm. Um, I, I first came across this a couple of years ago when I did a huge. Um, I was doing um, looking at doing a very large project on Peeping Tom, which I'd still like to do if there's any publishers listening. Um, <clears throat> hint, hint. Running out of time, um, Alex. Move on. <laughs> um, so I just did like a full on binge. <laughs> I just watched as much Powell and Presburger as I could, and I sort of watched it in that context, which in itself was really interesting. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think this is one of their strongest films, but I still have that intuitive thing from a kid that when it gets to like, can you please pass me a cup of tea? And it's like, oh God, just speak normally. You know, like <laughs> I just regress. I can't. Yeah. I mean, as far as for, well, somebody, that, on. for somebody that bristles with that kind of stuff from a very early age, yeah. I found that I, I found this, um, it didn't bother me in Hoffman. <laughs> I mean, I, this sounds like a philistine, but I'd love to see an edit of this where it just focused on the, the dance because the, the, the dance is spectacular and and obviously they were building this on the strength of the red shoes which has that 16 minute sequence of theatrical dance in it which is just mind-blowingly good and i kind of went into this hoping it would be a feature film version of that and that's in there plus a lot of very serious earnest opera stuff i think if this was one story i would have gotten a bit weary but i think that the the rhythm of it, the fact that it was these three different tales, it really kept me glued. And, I mean, I think for me it was just such a sensory experience. I'm so Um, so happy I saw it. I'm so happy I saw it. And especially that middle sequence was fantastic. Yeah, the first sequence is the one I love the most, but it's still the whole thing is so striking and I I adore its old-school trickery as well, the uh, old-school cinema effects, superimpositions. In the last story, there's a moment where somebody takes a dive that is just quite literally (gasps) breathtaking. There's some great graphic matches with the editing Mm. too. There's some really startling edits in this. Yeah, Um, stuff that goes back to the days of Melier. It's it's that real... uh, And Carol Zeman, who was making films around this time with similar really old school in camera trickery and I love that stuff our dudes pal and Presberg and you had to make a film they did and we've got to wrap up unfortunately um, but do go and see the tales of Hoffman even if you're resistant to opera like me it's, it's worth the experience regardless well, on a big screen it'll be overwhelming and it's going to be mind blowing at Acme too yeah on tonight's show we pay tribute to George A. Romero and if you are interested in seeing any of his films then the Astor Theatre are doing a tribute screening of Night of the Living Dead and Day of the Dead on Tuesday 1st of August Dunkirk is on wide release courtesy of Roadshow Films but do try to see it on 70 mil at the Rivoli Cinemas or the Sun Theatre or, or even better see the IMAX version at IMAX Melbourne and the Tales of Hoffman is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image until the 1st of August courtesy of Studio Canal you've been listening to Thomas Cordwell Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller Nicholas here on Plato's Cave the podcast version of the show is produced and edited by Faith Everard this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.